Welcome to the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. This is Doug Clinton. Today I'm joined by Iris Coates McCall, a researcher at the University of British Columbia Neuroethics, Canada. Avery Beddoes, Loop Ventures' very own neurotech specialist, also joined us. We had a fun discussion about the current state of neuroethics, self regulation, and we even got into the subjectivity of quote unquote right and wrong when it comes to ethics. The philosophical discussions are always fun. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Iris Coates-McCall. All right, Iris, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. And on the show, we also have Avery Beddoes, who's joined us before. He is the Loop Ventures Neurotech Specialist. Hello, Avery. Hello, Doug. Hey, Iris. So, Iris, to start, wanted to get a sense of what you spend your time on. So, you're a researcher at the University of British Columbia Neuroethics Canada. So, where do you spend your time? I spend most of my time at the on campus in the UBC hospital where our lab is located. But I actually work on two different projects. So I was hired to work on two different grants, one of which is based out of UBC, which is about the neuroethics of neurotechnologies in the workplace, essentially, that we are partnered with Technical Safety BC, which is a provincial safety body. And then the other half of my job is working on a project that is run out of Sunnybrook hospital in Toronto on first in human neurosurgeries. So I actually spend most of my time in Vancouver at Neuroethics Canada, but I also split it in Toronto at Sunnybrook. What draws you to neuroethics? Because it's something we talk a lot about and it's such an emerging field. So how did you get sort of involved in it and what attracted you to it? Well, I did my undergrad degree at McGill University, majoring in cognitive science, focusing on behavioral neuroscience and philosophy. And I've always been really, really, really interested in the brain. I find it fascinating. The mind-body problem has always been a personal favorite of mine. And I guess I always felt a little bit disillusioned with the science classes and the neuro classes I took in undergrad, where I feel like we would just be getting to the interesting part and then they'd cut it short. So being like, oh, okay, you know, the hippocampus does this, but what does that mean for our sense of self? What does that mean for the impacts on society? And they just basically say, we don't deal with that. That's something else. So I always felt a little bit like I wasn't getting entirely what I wanted out of that. And then I took a neuroethics course at McGill, which wasn't mandatory for me, but was mandatory for neuroscience students. So I was in cognitive science and it's mandatory for neuroscience, but not cogsci. And I was like, this is what I've been looking for. It's fascinating. It's talking about all the implications of neuroscience I've always been interested in. And I was really disappointed in that. Like One story I always remember is that we had this really fascinating lecture on sort of responsible science communications and how people don't necessarily have the same neuroscience background training as we do. So they aren't able to assess the veracity of claims in the same capacity we are. And I was like, yes, it's fantastic. And then at the end, the row in front of me stood up and everyone said, okay, so today I learned like some people can be really stupid. And I was like, well, no, that's, that's not what we learned today. So I decided I wanted to get more specific ethics training. So I did a master's in bioethics at Johns Hopkins and sort of got a more solid foundation in bioethics as more of a philosophical endeavor, but kept my focus on neurotechnology. And that's what I've continued working in since. Excellent. There's a few things you touched on that I want to dive into, but before I ask those questions, you mentioned the first of your two grants is for neuroethic in the workplace. I'm curious, what are some of the key considerations there, like neuroethics in the workplace? What's the main topic there? 
Well, what I find really interesting about this grant was that usually as ethicists, we are the ones approaching industry, right? Saying like, oh, sky is falling. You need to be concerned about these issues. In this case, they actually approached us because I guess a lot of employers are starting to approach them as the provincial safety body saying, we don't know how to deal with these technologies that are coming online and is it okay for us to use them? How can we use them? Are they safe? So they're looking at, I guess, a lot of sort of wearables for uh, employee monitoring, productivity monitoring. Now, this is mostly in research. I haven't seen it put into practice yet other than in China, but wearing sort of EEG headsets for safety purposes to detect fatigue, for example, in truck drivers. So things like that, mostly EEG, but some theoretical things with TDCS. But right now it's mostly sort of trying to get ahead of the curve and not things that employees are currently using. They're just interested in now that they're becoming aware of it, like how do we use this or should we? And Iris, when this organization approaches you, what are the tools that an ethicist has to bear on this kind of problem? That's difficult because in this particular instance, they didn't approach us. They approached the safety body who approached us. So what we've ended up doing is we did a bunch of sort of background research about workplace surveillance in general, personal technologies in the workplace in general, and then did some theoretical work as to how that could apply to neurotechnologies. And then we did some community engagement, speaking with the provincial body and seeing what their concerns were, how it aligned with us, and then really just sort of making some recommendations about how to move forward with these technologies. So at the beginning, fairly theoretical and removed, but we have engaged directly with several tech companies who themselves are looking to develop products and how they can move forward ethically and sort of giving them frameworks. Okay, I see. That leads into a question that I wanted to ask around kind of the current state, I guess, of ethics in consumer neurotechnology. And I think when we consider consumer neurotech also encompasses a lot of maybe the enterprise things that are going on in the workplace as well. So let's say non-medical. And what's kind of the state of the union today in terms of how those products are regulated? I guess the answer is by several different governmental agencies, at least in the states. So in terms of the claims that themselves make, so companies basically can make whatever claim they like as long as they don't need to get marketing approval beforehand, which I'll touch on in a bit. They can make whatever claim they like, but they have to be upheld to the same standards as any other commercial product, which is essentially Federal Trade Commission guidelines, FTC guidelines that monitor false advertising. So You can say whatever you want, but if a product's found to be making misleading claims, then someone has to bring that to the attention of the FCC, who can either take legal action against the manufacturer, either requiring them to change the claims they make or fine them. In terms of products themselves, however, if a product is making a health claim specifically, that then brings them under the regulation of the Federal Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. But what's interesting about that is that if a product is determined to be a medical device, it falls under the jurisdiction of the FDA. However, a medical device is defined not by its mechanism of action, but by its intended purpose. So that means that for in order for it to be a medical device, it needs to be intended for the use of diagnosis of disease or other conditions or the cure, mitigation, or treatment of that disease, or it needs to achieve its primary intended use through altering the structure or function of the body. However, most of these devices take a lot of effort to make sure that they are not making health claims, but make claims that stop just shy of this so that they don't have to undergo the really stringent safety and efficacy testing that would be required to get FDA approval. 
the FDA has also determined that sort of general wellness claims, which I would say the majority of the claims that direct-to-consumer technologies make, beyond the scope of their purview. So companies are careful not to use that language. So for example, they'll make claims related to stress rather than anxiety, or say to help you achieve a better state of health and not saying like, we will help you with XYZ health condition. And they've also determined the same with health apps. So even if a health app makes what would seem to be a health claim, they've decided that because an app itself is such low risk physically that that's outside their purview to regulate. It seems a little bit like it's kind of the Wild West right now, like the governing bodies are still figuring out how to deal with these problems. I would say so, yes. I would also say that, also, I feel like this is a disclaimer I should have said at the beginning, which is I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a health lawyer, so this is entirely just my understanding of it. But what I find interesting is that it's not necessarily the fact that regulation is insufficient. It could equally be the fact that regulation is just insufficiently enforced. So, for example, one of the things that we found in our research, which we found very interesting, is for non-related health claims, let's say enhancement claims, you know, these things saying that it'll make your kids, you know, attention better. Brain training is a great example. So the FTC has been cracking down on games and apps that are making brain training claims, saying that they're educational, that they will help you with cognitive functioning. And they've really been cracking down on those. But what we haven't seen, at least to our awareness, is them cracking down on devices that are making those same enhancement claims. So there seems to be a bit of a disconnect there. Like I'm not sure if they've decided the claims that devices are making just aren't sort of egregious enough, or if they just think that that falls outside of their jurisdiction. I'm not sure, but that's something that I've found interesting. That is interesting. I wonder if it ties to a point you made earlier, which was a lot of people don't have the same background in neuroscience and they just maybe don't understand what's going on with these. Is part of it that just a lack of knowledge of the bodies too? I think so. There also is a very well-documented phenomenon wherein a claim supported by scientific information and especially brain scientific information is way more likely to be believed in the absence of any other reason to do so than a claim supported by some other explanation. So for example, there's a famous, I'm blanking on the researcher at the moment, but they gave a fact and then said, tried to support it with just general biological facts and then neuroscientific facts. And then each condition had both in the presence and absence of photos. And people like photos better and they like biological information, but the amount to which people decided that something was credible when they was supported with neuroscientific evidence was huge. So I think that that definitely could be a strong cognitive predisposition to trusting these things and also in the absence of not really knowing about the technology themselves, maybe just sort of taking a step back from that because you don't want to accuse someone of being a fraud, essentially, you know. I think this is also reflected in the tendency for people to prepend the the word neuro yes. to yes. anything they're doing. It immediately adds this weight of legitimacy. Yeah. And it was funny. It actually made it really difficult for us when we were running our claims study. We were just trying to classify all the direct-to-consumer technologies that were out there and see the claims that they made. And it made it really hard to find the sorts of technologies we were actually looking at, because you type in neuro and then you've got vitamins, you've got your moleskin planner, which says it's like, I was like, oh, maybe this like pairs with a smartphone with your EEG device. It's like, no, it's just they've based on your cognitive studies. This is a neuro planner. This is so it just like made it very difficult to pare down all the things that were actually neurotechnologies. People just throw that phrase around so often. Yeah, we struggle with that, too. <laughs> Trying to figure out what a neurotechnology company actually is. It's harder than you might think. Yeah, everything happens in the brain. It's funny, yeah, there is definitely this sort of like 
authority bias inherent to using the term neuro. I was on a call yesterday with a friend of mine who's in venture capital, and he was talking about not nootropics, now they're neurotropics. I think that the whole class of these sort of vitamins or supplements has been reclassified probably for that exact reason. It's also easier to say. That helps too. Definitely. It makes more sense too. Nootropic doesn't make sense. Anyway, yeah, I think that's a good point is that there's this sort of credence, I think, maybe partly due to the complexity of neuroscience. People, you know, laymen just understand the term neuro and say, well, there must be something good to it. I'm curious, you know, given that there are guidelines that these products do fall under in terms of advertising with the FTC or health claims via the FDA. What do you think, Iris, is, is sort of the process for translating this research and ethics to policy and having better enforcement of it? Well, I feel like the knee-jerk reaction is for everyone to always say regulation. You know, we need increased regulation. We need to have these multidisciplinary working groups that engage policymakers and lawmakers and ethicists and the technologists, which is true. I do also think that is the slowest way to achieve the desired effect. I feel like there are other ways to implement ethical guidelines. So either regulation, yes, the downside is that it's slow. And also, like I said before, the enforcement, like sure, you can have a rule, but without proper enforcement mechanisms, it doesn't really do anything. You can also have sort of internal organizational level oversight. So companies making a conscious effort to have an integrated ethics consult structure. So that requires a strong interest in ethics implemented into everything the company does. Perhaps even have not an onboard ethicist, but maybe have someone in the social policy or if you have a governance person or a lawyer work in that regard, which has its limits because legal doesn't always equal ethical. But unfortunately, you can look at it from sort of like a risk mitigation standpoint, but environmental and social and gendered governance inequality is rapidly becoming a standard cornerstone of good corporate governance. It's no longer seen as a sort of like, oh, look at this extra thing we're doing. How good are we? It's a requirement to actually be considered that you are governing your company properly. So I think that ethics could definitely be wrapped into that new sort of group of social considerations that are important. I think that you have to definitely have Procedures in place. So you have to have someone in the organization who has a specific role of identifying like what the values are of that corporation, monitoring how they're being implemented, and recommending ways for the business to better themselves and implement those values. And then the third option is sort of external consultation. So private consulting firms that do this to help develop the necessary specialized roles because they have that background that people in the company might not have, even if they are interested. We do that sometimes. Companies will approach us and then we sort of work with them to make a framework or specific guidelines. So there are a number of ways, if that's answering your question as to how you make sure these things are implemented, you could sort of do it from policy level internally or bring in an external consult, I would say, are the three. I'm curious about the sort of second option of self-regulation, where I think Facebook's a great example of potentially attempting to self-regulate and doing a poor job of it, probably. I don't know if I'd say, you know, the way they run their business is unethical, but there's certainly things they do that are probably not in the best long-term interests of the world broadly, is fair to say. I'm curious, like as consumer neurotech companies release products into the world, obviously they have you know, a mandate from their shareholders to drive profit. How important do you think it will be for them to 
tie the concept of sort of profitability or social good all into one package where they're still able to sell their product effectively and still adhere to maybe these ethical frameworks? That's definitely the big question. A lot of people nowadays, like I was saying, are they're trying to sort of shift corporate mindsets into social responsibility is a cornerstone of success. Like that is in itself an outcome. I'm always been slightly pessimistic as to that. I think it is going to be more of an issue of sort of balancing the two. I don't think you're ever going to find a situation where the most ethical thing is the one that's going to always necessarily make you the most money. I do think, though, that the main thing is that companies just need to be conscious of it. Like like you were saying, like, you know, it seems like, you know, Facebook might have these internal mechanisms that might be doing it poorly. But I think that that is at least the necessary next step in the right direction is that for companies to always be keeping in the front of your mind while you're developing marketing, what the offside effects might be that my device might have. Because honestly, like the vast majority of people don't think they're being unethical when they are. And the vast majority of ethical infractions that have happened historically haven't been consciously put into place. It's just a lack of consideration or that people are so blinded by excitement, they don't stop to pause and think about sort of offside effects. And I think that just the more that we have ethicists talk about it and engage with developers in industry, the more aware all levels of development will be, including investors, and of the potential ethical implications. And I think that's one of the reasons why what we do is so important, just making it not this sort of background retrospective consideration, be like, we've got our product now, how do we implement it ethically, but trying to develop quote unquote ethical products, which is something I have a, it's not a great term, but it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. You said something there that I think is really interesting and very true, which is most of the time when people are being unethical, they don't really realize it. Sometimes there's a subjective element to that too, right? Like they don't think they're being unethical because in some cases, ethics can be on a subjective spectrum. So how do we ensure that there is a uniform, we all agree that XYZ is ethical and XYZ is not, and also allow for maybe there is some sort of, you know, middle gray area that we're not quite sure whether it's right or not to do, but I'm not sure how we adjudicate that. Oh, man. Welcome to the <laughs> entire field. Into, yeah, I didn't know you were getting into a deep philosophical conversation this morning, that's did you? Like, <laughs> no, no, that's the entire industry there right there. Is, uh, people will argue forever about what's ethical or not. You have all the different branches of it. You've got the one thing that modern bioethicists are far too Western-centric, which is true. I guess the closest thing we've gotten to is principalism in terms of this was developed sort of in the 70s by and Childress, which is being like, all right, we've got all these different ethical doctrines. What are the sort of principles that all of them can agree with? Like, they're never going to agree about everything. Like, what can we at least put down that everyone collectively agrees is ethical? And that's where they came up with beneficence, non-maleficence, justice, and respect for autonomy or respect for persons. So I personally am comfortable with that as a guideline. One of the problems is that definitely in the West, there's sort of this doctrine of the respect for autonomy trumps all. Whereas I know at least in African bioethics, that's very much not the case. They've got this fifth construct, which I'm forgetting, but it's basically the good of the people. And that is the one that trumps everything else. So while we have decided collectively that you can never harm an individual for the benefit of more people if they don't want to. So you can't kill one person for organs that will save seven others, right? Iris, is that a general reflection of an individualist versus collectivist cultural difference? I would say absolutely, yes. Whereas over there, I don't, not about the transplant case, but they do find it, or at least a lot of African bioethicists, 
do feel that it is acceptable to put one person out for the benefit of the group. So in terms of finding a sort of objective bioethics or ethical system, I think we're a long, long way off from that. The way that we've tried to get around it is by one of the uh, people that we work with very closely is over the years developed this concept of what's called pragmatic neuroethics, which really focuses on borrowing a lot of techniques from the social sciences and looking at things not from a normative lens, but from a slightly more outcome-based stance. So it's a lot more of doing reviews like we did on the claims project. So what are these people actually claiming versus how are people hearing it? And then trying to bring those two as close together as possible. So rather than saying like, this is the right thing to do, looking at empirical research and how that can go in line more closely with the aims that people are trying to achieve while making those claims. That's also inherently easier to implement as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Companies live and die by their KPIs. And so if you can hand them a KPI that just happens to be an indicator of the ethicalness of what they're doing, I think it'd be much easier to ensure self-regulation as well because it already fits within the processes they have internally. It's very easy, yes. It's also, you have to be very careful in doing that because ethics is so nuanced and situation-specific and you always have to be aware of that because if you just hand someone a checklist saying, if you meet all of these things, you are being ethical, people will find ways to meet that checklist while not being ethical. Again, not necessarily on purpose, just because they either don't see certain consequences that are happen that they didn't expect. It's very difficult to put ethics into a checklist when we don't have that universal decision on what is ethical. I love this conversation. It, I'm sure we could talk about it too, probably for hours and hours. But there was one other key question I wanted to ask you in the time that we have, which is we've thought a lot about the future of augmentative neurotechnology. And I'd love to hear how you get about the decision-making process for someone who is willing to undergo elective surgery, you know, elective neurosurgery, maybe it's for an augmentative process and how the ethics factor into that. That's huge. I don't think we are at the place yet where any clinical team would be or experimental team would be willing to do something entirely on an elective basis, especially if it's something like neurosurgery. Now, the people we're working with directly are people who are electing to undergo novel brain surgery. So it's never been done before. They have no reason to believe it will work for them. And that's a hard enough thing to navigate. But in terms of all of these people who are saying that they want to, you know, put, you know, neuro mesh in their brains to be connected with their smartphones, I'm sure it'll happen in the future. This is all hypothetical moving forward because I don't think right now anyone would agree to that because it just does fly so much in the face of the general risk-benefit analysis that we do in order to decide if something is ethical or not. But one thing that is similar between the two cases of elective surgery or experimental surgery for a clinical indication versus experimental surgery for sort of an elective procedure is that the two situations throw off that risk-benefit analysis. So there are obviously other considerations, but more or less when a research ethic board sits down and says, are we going to do this, allow this research protocol to go through? They say, okay, you know, what are the potential benefits, both to society and to the individual? Usually it's to the individual, but for first in human trials, when you can't necessarily have any reasonable expectation of benefit, the production of generalizable knowledge is an end in itself that we will recognize versus the risks. So in any first in human surgery, you don't 
know what the risks are because it's never been done before. So it's just from the get-go, you can't use that sort of calculation that we generally use. In the case of completely selective for, like you say, enhancement purposes, that's interesting. And I haven't thought about this before. So if I don't, if I'm not, or, uh, apologize. But it also throws off the benefit analysis because we have fairly good ideas of what the benefit would be for someone undergoing novel surgery for a clinical indication. You know, they can either get better, you can stop the progress of something bad, or you can produce generalizable knowledge. With the other case, it's sort of like, well, you're producing benefit that's, like you say, it's enhancement. It's not returning you to a baseline level of health, but also no one else is going to necessarily benefit from it. It's a really interesting calculation when you think about it in that regard. I'm not sure what the process would be. I think it would probably end up being a rogue scientist, a rogue doctor doing it, to be honest, for the first part, like a very, very willing participant, like not someone who's, you know, being captured against their will, but something similar to the first in humans that are gene edited babies that, that just happened, I would assume. It's funny. I mean, maybe unintentionally, we've sort of tied back to what we were just talking about a minute ago in terms of the sort of sanctity of individual choice versus collective good. Just thinking that. Yeah, it's, it's the key question. Well, we should definitely talk more about it. And I think that's the takeaway is it's something it's important. It's a space we love. And so we're going to continue to talk about it. Iris, I have one last question for you, though, today, which is what would be a neuroscience-related book that you'd recommend to everyone listening to read to learn more? This isn't necessarily to learn more. No, you would learn from it. Okay, I stand by it. It's called um, Portraits of the Mind. I can't remember who put it together. It's basically seems to be more or less a coffee table book of just really, really beautiful pictures of brain imaging. But it's really interesting in that it's a history of our exploration of the brain through the ages, through images. So it starts out with sort of medieval sketches and anatomical sketches and sort of 19th century drawings all the way up through, you know, the original like Golgi staining and then up to MRIs and PET scans. And it's just beautiful, beautiful pictures, but it sort of gives a history and uh, evolution of how we got to where we are in terms of what we know about the brain as revealed through the images that taught us about it. And each chapter has a different neuroscientist discussing that sort of era in neuroscience and imaging. And it's really beautiful and very interesting, even if you just want to flip through it. Yeah. Someone else recently recommended that to me. And it's such a good idea. It's a great choice. Awesome. Well, we will add that to the show notes. And that's all we have for today. Iris, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you so much for having me. 